We'll see how you feel in a half hour. Uh, it, it's such a joy to be together uh, with you tonight. And through those three years ago, you know, all I did was try to create a little quiet space for Jeannie and Jared to hear what God was saying to them. And that's a pretty important thing to do is to try to create some space in your life now and then to be able to hear what God's trying to say to you. And I'll tell you, that's my heart tonight is over the next few minutes we have left in this service is to try to create some space for you to hear what your own life is saying to you, maybe what God is whispering to you. And to do that, I want you to think back to the high school that you attended, and when the last time you might have visited that campus. It's been decades since I graduated from Gatella High School in Southern California, and I get back there every so often, and a while back I was there, and I always tour the campus, have my nostalgia moments where I think of classes and people and locations that are important. The most important place on the campus is outside of the gymnasium. I played basketball in high school, so inside was important. But what's most important is outside the gymnasium, as you can see this picture as you look at the gym from a distance, uh, on a Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock, all of us are sitting in classes and uh, the doors are open. Obviously, it's an open campus in Southern California out to the quad and we hear a motorcycle begin to rev and it runs through all the gears and it gets louder, which we didn't hear very often <laughs> on a morning like that. And then there was this horrible thud of a motorcycle going 65 miles an hour into that gym wall. And I go and I stand at that gym wall every so often when I'm back at Cattell, and it's been 40 years, the wall's been painted over and over again, but you can see the indentations that the forks on the front end of that motorcycle left in that gym wall. And I stand at that wall, and I reflect on that kid's life, who was a junior in high school, who the day before his girlfriend broke up with him, and the next day he kills himself on his motorcycle to get her attention. And that is the legacy, that is the mark that kid left on planet Earth. And I put my fingers in the holes, of those fork marks, and I ponder the kind of mark that I want to leave on planet Earth. And that's what I want you to do tonight, is I want you to stand at the wall at Catella High School with me, and I want you to mentally put your fingers in the holes of those walls, and I want you to ask yourself, what kind of mark are you leaving on planet Earth? And what kind of mark do you want to leave on planet Earth? Because we talk a lot today in our culture about carbon footprint. And it's very important for us to be environmentally conscious. We want to hand off to our children and our children's children a healthy, wonderful planet. God has called us to steward this globe. But not often enough do we talk about our relational footprint and the kind of footprint we might want to leave. Because I'm always bumping into people, and I'm sure you are too, who are victims of the opposite of how I think God wants us to live. Recently I was at a conference. A guy who is 6'10", I'm 6'4". I don't look up very often. He comes up to me, he says, can I tell you about my childhood? I said, sure. He said, my name is Don. When I was 10 years old, I grew up in a home where my dad was a good alcoholic. So what do you mean good alcoholic? He said, well, my father could function when he was drunk. And he would coach my little league team when he was drunk. And, you know, he'd drive when he was drunk and he was able to function. He said, one of the things that was difficult is my father was a great athlete and I was a really timid little kid. So at 10 years old, my dad's coaching my little league team, and I would stand in the batter's box, and any time a pitch would come anywhere close to me, I'd step out because I was afraid of getting hit. And it would enrage my dad, and he would scream at me. He would say, stand in the batter's box. Come on, Donnie, you can hit the ball. And I couldn't. I was just too scared. He said, one day my father was so exasperated with me that he puts the fastest pitcher in our little league on the mound, gives him a bucket of balls, and he puts me in the batter's box, and he holds onto my belt and he forces me to stand in the batter's box while this guy throws fast pitches. He said, by the time I had hit enough balls out of the infield, the entire left side of my body is covered with bumps and bruises. I have two 
lumps on the side of my face from getting hit by pitches that my father wouldn't let me get out of the way of. He said, that isn't the worst thing, Dan. He said, we would drive home from every game with some of my teammates in the back seat, and my father would go out of his way to turn around and say to my teammates, geez, I wish I would have had a little girl because a little girl could hit better than my son. He said, I'm 58 years old today. Two years later, I'm 12 years old. My life is not working. I'm sitting in my bedroom, and I'm crying. And my father overhears me crying. He breaks through the door, looks at me with red bloodshot eyes, enraged, and he says, if I ever hear you cry again, I'm going to kill you. And he said, I knew my father wasn't lying to me. He said, I emotionally shut down that day. Six years ago, when I was 52, 40 years later, I was sitting in a movie theater, and I was watching a movie that triggered something inside of me, and I wept for 45 minutes. For the last six years of my life, I've been attempting to take back my emotional life. The, 40, the four decades that my father stole from me. You know, and I thought, my goodness gracious. Uh, I think all of us are born with like this delicate set of china in our inner guy or girl. That I think God wants us to serve our gifts, our talents, our passions to the world on. And so many of us have grown up in homes where our parents have just shattered the china. And how thankful are we that God specializes in pottery and rebuilding that stuff. And so what I want to have us think about is that every one of us can make the kind of mark on planet Earth that I think God intends if we would recognize his amazing love for us, receive that love, and then make a decision to go out and to bump into other people. When you listen to the words of Christ, let me give a biblical context to what we want to talk about tonight. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, a new commandment I give to you in John 13. It's not a suggestion, it's an imperative. I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my followers if you have love for one another. Very simple thing. Jesus says, listen, the predominant characteristic of all of my followers ought to be love because they have received love, then they ought to step into their relational world and hopefully impact their worlds with this kind of love. The Apostle Paul echoes this thought in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, fifth chapter. Paul says, I want you to be imitators of God, you know, kind of study God's moves, how he works and moves and lives and expresses himself on planet Earth. Be imitators of him as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So it's a give up kind of love, a sacrificial kind of love. Then the Apostle Paul goes on in a book that he wrote to the church at Corinth in chapter 13, which we've all heard at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, so on and so forth. But the last verse is that now abide faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And then the first two words, which often get neglected, of the 14th chapter are pursue love. And that verb pursue is a verb that is used in relation to an animal hunting down its prey and killing it. There's a certain aggressiveness. Paul says, I want you to get really serious about focusing on understanding love, chase this thing down, apply it to your life, and make it a characteristic in you. And then he ends the book in, in chapter 16. He says, I want you to be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, behave like mature people, be strong, and let 20% of what you do be done in love. That's not what the scripture says, right? Let all that you do be done in love. So I don't think any of us question the power of love. We've got to figure out what do we mean by this. Because we've all grown up in cultures. We've listened to artists and we've been messed with. 
And I thought it would be really helpful for all of us if we could bring someone up who is culturally astute, profoundly wise for his age, and have him tell us a little bit about his understanding of love and how it's changed over the years. And so, Jared, come on up. Where are you, Matt? <laughs> I'm setting you up, buddy. Sure. Yeah, I thought that was me you were talking about. You forgot handsome. All right, now... <laughs> I, I, wanna, I want you to think how you would answer these questions if you were standing up here right now. Jared, obviously, uh, you weren't always the mature, well-refined individual no, that always. you are today. As much as I am today. <laughs> when you were in junior high school, uh, what was your understanding, your concept of love? And is there a song yeah. that I'm might reflect your... I'm glad your... you asked, Dan. Uh, <laughs> I was a big mixtape guy. Made a lot of mixtapes. Before there were playlists, there was a pause, play, record... Uh, function that I was really good at. So I made a lot of mixtapes. And uh, when I was in middle school, um, everything was new. So I moved to a new middle school in seventh grade, and there was like this whole new sea of girls. And uh, so I just began to date as many of them as possible. But I was a very confused young man. So if there was a song that encapsulated that time, it would probably be this. What is love? I didn't know, Dan. I didn't know what it was, but I liked it, All right. right? I liked it, and, and so that would, be, that would be middle school, that would describe... All right, now, okay, season. so obviously you grew up confused, a little bit, you got confused. into high school, right? and I'm sure you, you know, your, the evolution of the concept of love in your mind evolved. What about high school? What, what was yeah, the so here's the problem with dating every girl uh, in your middle school, is that I dated half of them at the same time. And so by uh, the time I got to ninth grade, I was literally blacklisted. There was like a pact that the girls made that they would not date me. And so I had this bumper crop in middle school of love and girls and all that. But it was a dry spell uh, in ninth and tenth grade. And so this, uh, this would be that song from that era. It's true, Dan. It was a hard time. It was a hard time, but I made it through, Dan. I made it all through. All right, all right. I can see that you're growing a little bit. You're learning. A little bit, a little bit. You're learning, and that's important. How many of you are starting to worry about him as a pastor right now? <laughs> they've, they stopped, yeah. they've been worried for a long time, Dan. That's not, there's <laughs> okay, nothing okay, new. That's, that's not new. All right, so now you go through high school, you know, and then you go into college. You read the classics, you know, and your heart gets expanded. You read poetry and all that kind of stuff, and then you get married. Yes, I'm sure I, your understanding of love has grown since you've been married. It has. Okay. Uh, so I met Jeannie here in Chicago. I grew up in San Francisco, was out here visiting Chicago, uh, and met her and fell instantly um, for her. It took her a little while to catch up to me. But um, <laughs> I felt, and it was pretty romantic, pretty quick. So this would be uh, a song from, from that would describe that era. <laughs> Is that Barry White? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> So, basically, that's just an excuse to play Barry White in church <laughs> and say that I got away with it. I think I'm in the Guinness Book of World Records for doing that. Oh, so. my goodness. But it was very passionate. Okay. It was a very romantic, okay. very passionate relationship. All right. Very now, quickly. Well, you, you've had one, is, more, one more major, heart-expanding transition. You're now a father. I am. Okay. Yeah, and so, tell us, kids. how is your life? I don't know yeah. if I want to know. No, it wasn't. <laughs> we're not going to... Go ahead. I'm not going to connect the last song to that. But um, uh, we do. So, now... Uh, yeah, there was a, a movie that came out a long time ago called Mo Better Blues, and this is the theme song from it. 
And the first night we brought uh, our son Elijah home from the hospital, you know, he's crying as babies do. And for whatever reason, I, I didn't know what else to hum to him to get him to calm down. So I put him in my arms, and I had to go to the darkest place in our house, which is our closet. So I'm in our closet, and I'm holding him, and I'm just humming this refrain just over and over and over to him for a good 30 minutes, just humming it to him, rocking him back and forth. And for whatever reason, it was this song, and then this song stuck. And so that became, this is the go-to song when our kids can't sleep, and when our daughter Gigi came home from the hospital... This is the song I just kept humming and humming to her, and they know it now is the do 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 song. And she'd ask me to sing, Daddy, sing do 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 to me, and just same thing, uh, holding and rocking and, and humming the song. So it was uh, a tremendous uh, education in what love really means, bringing those two little ones into the world. So, all right. Well, I think I think we've all grown Good. from, from this expose on so love. Let's help. thank Jared for that. All right, well, let's all be thankful that we get to a time in our lives when we recognize love is more than just kind of a hormonal secretion that hits our bloodstream. You know, I think all of us have gotten to the point where we recognize that's infatuation. We want to understand what real love is. And so a working definition I want you to think about as we think about making the right kind of mark is love is leveraging, using your presence and your resources to positively mark another person as God leads you. All of the resources that we have been given are out of the good graces of God. All of our intelligence, our talents, our experiences, all of our financial resources, all those things we have kind of in a vat. And I'm suggesting that love is you walking into your relational world, having those things surrendered to God, and applying those to other people's lives as God leads you through your presence and the sharing of your resources, whatever that would look like. And this is a powerful thing. It is an amazing thing to receive love. My mom and brother came to live with us in uh, December of last year. My mom is 89, my brother's 47, is Down syndrome, as you can see. And it's been quite a transition for them to come and live with us from the state of Washington, and it's been a transition for my wife and I, obviously, having been empty nesters, raising three boys, and now we are reforming our family. And my mom, uh, the woman who gave up her figure to birth me, and who has cared for me over all of these years in so many different ways... Of course, as soon as she moves into West Michigan, she has a physical problem and has to go in for emergency surgery on New Year's Eve. So there my wife and I are at a hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's 10.30 at night. The surgical ward is empty except for my mother in emergency surgery. We're in the waiting room, which is dark, and there's only one name on the the television screen there. And it's 10.30, and my mind is spinning. I'm thinking about the implications of Brian and Mom coming to live with us. And I'm thinking about, is she going to survive this thing? And, oh my gosh, a lot's going on in my inner world. And I get a phone call. And I reach into my pocket and I look, you've got to be kidding me. And I walk outside in the hallway and I hit the answer button. And here's a friend of mine who I have no idea how he found out that I was in a hospital on New Year's Eve at 1030. This guy has a lot of financial resources. He could be in 100 different places doing 100 different things like most people are on New Year's Eve. And yet, for some reason, he hears about me, and he calls me, and in three words, I feel the power of love. He says, how are you? And I couldn't answer right away. I mean, just a simple three-letter phrase. The reason why experiencing love is so powerful is this. Let me ask you a question. How many people woke up today in your relational world and have thought about you since dawn today? Let's go one step further. 
How many people have awakened today in your relational world and have thought positively about you today? And then how many people in your relational world have thought positively about you and then assessed your personal needs, recognized they have resources, and have actually looked towards heaven and have said, God, what resource would you want me to leverage, get into play, to help communicate to this man, this woman, this guy, this girl, that you care for them as an expression of love? How many people have done that for you today? And how many people have you done that for today? My brother, as you uh, saw his picture, Brian is an amazing guy. He is my love guru. Because Brian doesn't have a a huge vat of resources. Um, But when he shows up, he is himself. And he doesn't care if you're Bill Gates or if you're homeless. He is the same person. And he will give all that he has to care for you in that moment of time. You should hear my brother pray. It's unbelievable. Yes, he, he prays for me when I travel, when I speak. He asks God to bless me, to give me wisdom, to help people. So if God has anything good happen here tonight, it's because of Brian's prayers. And I'm so thankful for him as he has instructed me. Receiving love is an incredibly powerful thing. And I feel that from Brian. I'll go home tonight and my wife will, you know, are you back? Already? And Brian will say to me tonight, I missed you. And I will feel that. Because he really does miss me. It's an amazing thing. And so receiving love is an incredibly powerful thing. And if any of us have tried to turn around and then walk into our relational world and do that, we recognize this is not an easy thing to do. So we need examples. We need models to follow. And Jesus is our great exemplar when it comes to manifesting and living love. And how was he able to do that? I mean, how was Jesus able to do what is referenced of him in John chapter 13, verse 1? The scripture says that Jesus loved his disciples to the uttermost. He couldn't love them anymore. He manifested that kind of love. And it wasn't always easy to love these guys. He had some knuckleheads that followed him. He had the apostle Peter who said stupid stuff all the time. And I'm sure the Lord had to shake his head and said, man, you know, how do I keep doing that? James and John. These guys had darkness in their hearts. They're walking through a certain area in Samaria, and the Samaritans are giving Jesus some grief, and they step up and they go, Lord, we can handle this. They're like Chicago mafia dudes. They go, like, you want us to call fire from heaven down? Because we can take care of these guys right now. And Jesus, he just shakes his head. He says, you guys don't know what spirit you're from. And so Jesus had pressure and expectations and difficult people to love, and yet he kept being able to do this. How did he do it? I think it's pretty simple to understand. In John chapter 15, Jesus gives a clue to his followers of how they're going to be able to continue to show up and love others, love each other. Jesus, in John chapter 15, verse 9, he says, Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Now think of how simple and profound that is. Jesus says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. So the Lord is saying, listen, the way that I'm able to show up and to love you the way you need to be loved is I get away from you. Really. I back away and I transform from a giving mode of love to a receiving posture of love. And I quiet my heart. And I go before the Father. And just as the Father has loved me, that experience, and I bring that back into the world. And a few verses later, Jesus says, now listen, I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. And so the Lord is saying, hey, before you go out and you try to change your family in Chicago and everything else, all all the aspirations that we have, here's here's an important thing. Slow down. 
and do this. And receive the love, this amazing, patient, uh, you know, unmerited love that God, because God is love in his nature, has for his creation. And when we do that, when we experience that, something on a fundamental level changes inside of us. I was amazed tonight to think about a patient love which chases someone down, you know, uh, in baptism. And how understanding God's love changes the self-esteem of another person who gets baptized tonight. And when you bump into a person who has been impacted by the love of God, there's a fundamental shift that happens on, on the inside. What the disciples all had in common while they had different backgrounds, and every one of them had collided with the love of Jesus. And it affected them on a very deep level. And so how do we do that? How do we slow ourselves down? And how do we move from a go, go, give, give posture to a receive posture so that then we can experience a love that Jesus has for us and then we can walk into our worlds? Well, I think it would be very important for us tonight as Ryan and the folks come back up for us to take a few minutes and to slow ourselves down and to think, allow in our minds to remember uh, what God feels for us, and then for us to turn around and hopefully be motivated to want to go out and do that. So let's, let's pray together. Let's uh, take a few quiet moments here. Let's withdraw as Jesus often did and in our hearts. Even though we're together in our spirits, we can kind of uh, be alone before the Lord. And let's ask him to, to kind of open us up. Lord, as we slow down in this moment, we are so thankful that you see us and that you know us. And Father, some of us have come here tonight and, um, you know, we kind of get a lump in our throat because, man, our China was shattered when we were young and we question whether there is a love source on this planet. And somehow in the miracle of who you are and through your Spirit's presence, would you move in on us and let your love salve our hearts you know, each one of them, depending where we are. May we look towards you. May those of us who know you remind ourselves of your great love for us. Uh, breathe on us in this moment, Lord, we ask. Often it doesn't take a long time to reconnect our hearts with the love of God. Um, scripture says Jesus constantly withdrew and had these moments. And so I think there were times kind of a transaction, you know, when we learn what it is to receive the love of God. The book of Jude has just a very short letter. It has a phrase of scripture in there where it says, uh, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's a pretty important admonition to figure out what do I need to do personally to keep myself in the love of God. It's my responsibility to figure that out. It's not Jeannie's job to make it happen for me or Jared's job or Anyone else is Orion's job. It's, it's my responsibility to keep myself in the love of God. And so we slow down. We remind ourselves of the truth of how God feels about us. We be very careful that when we start our self-hate stuff going on, that we don't assume because I don't like myself right now that God doesn't like me right now. When we do that, we project our own self-hate onto the person of God and we create him in our image and that's a violation of one of the big ten. We don't want to do that. We've got to let God be God. God in his very nature is love. So his love never changes towards us. And we have to remind ourselves of that. So we read scripture and we put it into our hearts. We get truth from here into here. 
we sing, we, we allow the Spirit of God to move in our hearts. We pray, we do things where we respond to God and God responds to us. Those are all transactional things that we can do to increase our understanding of God's love for us. And you know, as I've grown in my faith over the decades, I'm trying to live now more in the flow of God's love. You know, the great saints lived moment by moment and they had this wonderment of God is incredibly generous and his life is flowing towards us every second of the day. And that is a very powerful thing to realize that through the sunset they would see the generosity of God. Through the smell or the aroma of coffee brewing, they, I don't get that, but you know, <laughs> the taste of chocolate, now we're talking. There's a good God in heaven. But you know, through the smile of a friend, I look at the face of my, of my brother and I can see the joy of God. And so we, we pay attention to that and we become alert that, that God is flowing life. Every you know, cell and atom in your body that's spinning is sustained by the power and the nature of God. So it's a powerful thing. And I often wonder, what if that kid, that 17-year-old kid, woke up that day and in his core, he knew that he was loved by God? And if he would have been able to say, my girlfriend broke up with me yesterday and life isn't pleasant right now, but I'm going to survive because in my core I'm loved and I'm not going to take my motorcycle into that wall. What would happen if Don's dad, who probably was handed a broken baton from his dad, would have awakened that morning and thought, you know what, I'm, love, I'm a loved man. And he would have commiserately treated his son in a way that was like that. All of you have cards, uh, little three by, six, I don't know what these are, four by six or whatever. But take that out if you would. And I want to tell you a closing story. And as I do, I want you to think about who you might write on this card. Uh, if on one side you would just put who and how, who kind of one column, how the other column. The who is, is there someone in your relational world today, tomorrow, this week, who you know God is bringing to mind and he's whispering to you, listen, I want you to go out of here and I want you to activate one of your resources to communicate love to this person, this real life person. You may do that through a phone call, how are you? You may do that through a difficult conversation, I'm worried about you. You may do that by sharing a financial need to help some kind of situation. I don't know. There's a thousand different needs in a thousand different ways, but when we live our heart, with our hearts open, we receive the love of God, we're to turn around. And so you might want to write the names uh, on that card as you listen to this last story. Uh, 14 years ago, I had the chance to speak to a group of high school students on the East Coast. And there was one kid there uh, named Kristen Peterson that you can see a picture of, who I just got a big kick out of. She was pretty and bright and deeply in love with Christ. And one night, I'm standing looking at the 17-year-old young brunette, and I'm trying to convince her to marry my 16-year-old son. <laughs> really, I'm just trying to cut all the romance, all the, let's just do the deal. He's handsome, he's sensitive, he's athletic. You'd, you'd love my son. And so she's dancing with me. We're having a good time. But eventually she does this. I can handle my own love life, big guy. So I said, all right, Kristen, it's your loss. And I turn away from her to walk away. And she says to her leader, golly, Laura, I wish my dad loved me like he loves his sons. And I stopped. I turned back around. I said, wait, wait, wait. Kristen, what'd you say? She said, nothing. No, no. I said, honey, what'd you say? She said, well, it's really obvious that you love your three sons. I mean, it's almost obnoxious, Dan. Really. Uh, and I just wish that my dad loved me like you love your boys. I said, why do you say that? She said, well, two years ago, my dad left my mom for a younger body. That was her phrase. 
And I said, I'm sorry. She said, yeah, my dad said two years ago, listen, you're my daughter. I'll reconnect with you. Don't worry about it. We'll be fine. And she told me, she said, the last two years I've seen my dad twice, and neither of them were good encounters. So I'm looking at the face of the 17-year-old high school kid, and I'm a man who has been impacted by the love of God. And I'm assessing, I'm mindful enough in that moment to wonder, okay, Lord, what do I do in this moment? And so I look at her and I said, listen, Kristen, I'm really sorry. I'm the one who has to say this to you. And she looks up at me like, what are you going to say? And I said, but I'm going to say it. I said, Kristen, you're beautiful. You have got it going on, young lady. You have this wonderful faith. You're smart. Your future is so bright. If you understood in this moment of time how much God loves you every second of every minute of every day, it would give you so much hope for your future, even in spite of your dad. And tears start rolling down her cheeks. And she said, thank you. Thank you for that. I said, listen, I just, it's important for you to remember that. She said, you're right, it's important for me to remember that. So the next day, I am uh, spending some time praying for these kids, and I get to Kristen's name, who, kids who were at the conference, and I'm, and I'm thinking, Lord, you know, here's Kristen, who's going to go back into her home tomorrow because the conference is over, and her mom is still reeling two years up the road from her husband's departure. And if you're 17, life is hard enough. If you've got parents who love each other, who care for you, when you're 17, life is hard enough. Now rip your dad out of your life and a mother whose heart's shattered, and life is really hard for this kid. So I'm just imagining, and, I, and I'm praying, Lord, how can I, what can I do to help this kid as she goes back into her home? And I actually was running around a track at Johns Hopkins uh, praying for these kids. And the Lord whispers to me, why don't you give her your bracelet? And I thought, that's a great idea. I, I, I get it. And I was wearing a cotton bracelet just like this. It says, right now, right now on it, which was the theme of a camp that I'd spoken at earlier in the summer, and they had created these things. And so I you know, jogged back to the uh, dormitory where we were all staying, and I wash the bracelet. And that night before our last session, I saw Kristen before the session. I said, Kristen, listen, I have a gift for you. I want you to find me afterwards. And she, sa she says, gift? Gift for moi? I said, I don't know who moi is, but I got a gift for you afterwards. <laughs> you know, 17, she rolls her eyes, gives me that action. So she comes up to me after the session, the last session. She goes, all right, gimme, gimme, gimme. I said, wait, wait, wait. I just can't give you this valuable gift without us talking for just a second. I said, Kristen, we had a conversation last night, right? She said, right. I said, what did we talk about? She said, you reminded me last night that I'm beautiful in God's eyes and that he loves me every second of every minute of every day. I said, good job, girl. Wait, you, yeah. I said, are you going to be able to remember that? She said, I'm going to try. I said, well, I don't think you'll be able to without a little help. And so I'm going to give you a gift. Stick out your wrist. So she sticks out her bony little wrist, and I put this on her wrist with the words right now looking up at her. And I said, Kristen, when does God love you? And I tapped on the bracelet. She said, um, she's trying to figure out, oh, right now. <laughs> Thank you. You know, raise the conviction a little bit. She goes, okay, right now. I said, God loves you right now, right? Yeah, she said, right. I said, this week when some kid says something stupid to you and your fragile 17-year-old self-esteem is lying in the dust and you're feeling ugly and unlovable, when does God see you as beautiful and precious to him? She said, right now. I said, in the next couple months, when kind of the storm clouds rise up over the horizon of your life and you wonder whether there's really a future for you, 
when does God have a future and a hope for you? She said, right now. I led her through like eight of those affirmations. <laughs> Folks, I am not exaggerating. Standing in front of me, this kid's heart like split in two and fell open. And these sobs come out of her that were almost frightening. Some of you know what I'm talking about when you sit with someone who cries versus someone who sobs. She fell onto my chest and cried so hard. Her leader, Laura, was standing right there. It was, it was one of those cries that was like snot mascara tears. Really. I'm thinking, I'm throwing this shirt away when this little opportunity for ministry is done. And she stepped away from me. After about a minute, she looks up at me. She says, you have no idea what God just did in my heart. I said, I don't know. I may have an idea. I mean, I just witnessed a miracle. And I, I was amazed that through, uh, through every one of us, the love of God is capable of impacting another human life. Listen, if God could use me as a vehicle, and it was all about him in that moment, he can use everybody in this place. Well, I haven't abandoned Kristen over these 14 years. We've continued to email back and forth, and I've been involved in her life and encouraged her in her healing, her relationship with her dad, and helped her sort out who she is and how she wants to invest her life. The next slide is her, the upper left one is her in Cuba doing missions work, and the lower right one is her teaching school in Costa Rica. She teaches at a Christian school. And she has written me a lot of notes over the years of how God has slowly restored her confidence in men. Because the note she gave me when I got onto the bus at that conference, she said, uh, you are the first man that I've ever encountered that gives me hope that maybe there is someone out there who cares for me legitimately and won't screw me over. At age 17, she already had that thought locked in. And in this last year, God brought Alberto into her life and he loves like God loves. And they got married in April. How sweet is that? The Lord is good. And every note that we send back and forth over all these years, it always ends with capital R-I-G-H-T-N-O-W, which is pretty cool. All right, so you got a card there. And you're thinking about your world. Somebody right now, in the next hour, in the next day, God is going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, get your resources in play. I love you. Receive my love. Get active. Let me pray. Father, thank you for every person who sits here tonight. Thank you for this amazing reality of the love of God, which has been the song of the church since it started a couple thousand years ago. Thank you for your heart that we were on your mind and you brought your resources to bear by sending your son for us. And Lord, if there like is anyone sitting here tonight and they need to be reminded that they are a loved woman or a loved man, somehow communicate that to their hearts. Help them to talk with someone about this. And I pray that uh, these folks would be empowered to give that great demonstration of loving one another and the world around them. And might your hand be on this work, we ask in Christ's name.